Hello and welcome to Radical, Women and the Irish Revolution. I'm your host, Julie Morrissey, poet in residence at the National Library of Ireland. In this podcast series, I will be joined by a variety of guests to talk about my experience as I think and write about some of the most important women in Irish history. This podcast invites listeners to join my learning and creative processes at the National Library and gives a chance to follow my project as it unfolds. I'm delighted to be joining you for episode two of the Radical podcast series. Thanks to everyone who tuned into episode one. And if you didn't have a chance yet, you can listen back on the National Library SoundCloud page. I'm really excited today to continue the series with yet another brilliant guest. Today we're joined by Dr. Alice Rekab. Dr. Alice Rekab is an artist, researcher and educator based in Dublin. Their practice is concerned with expressions and iterations of complex cultural and personal narratives. Alice takes their own mixed race Irish identity as a starting point from which to explore experiences of race, place and belonging. Over the last 10 years, Alice's practice has centered around collaboration and interdisciplinary work from which they produce film, performance, text, image and sculpture, creating new intersectional narratives and objects for gallery-based exhibition and large-scale public commission. Their projects include Family Lines, a solo exhibition and multi-platform project with the Douglas Hyde Gallery Dublin 2022, Ricochet 14, a solo presentation at Museum via Stuck Munich 2023, Concealed in the Half Light at Catalyst Arts Centre Belfast 2021, and Truth Flags Identity, a temporary public artwork commissioned by Temple Bar Gallery and Studios for Dublin Culture Night 2020. So I invited you today, Alice, because I, I love your work. And over the past few months in my research at the National Library, I've been reminded of particular artworks by you. I've been thinking specifically about your artworks, Truth Flags Identity, which I mentioned um, in your intro, and Migration Sings, which were commissioned by Temple Bar Gallery and Studio for Culture Night 2020, and also your artwork, Breaking Emmett's Block. And I'm really looking forward to talking about each of those artworks today in relation to my work at the National Library. I think we might start with Truth Flags Identity, but first, I'm going to just explain some of the ideas I've been thinking about. My research in the last few months has focused on the use of flags and song by women in the revolutionary period as interventions into public space. For example, many listeners may be familiar with the actions taken by Rosie Hackett, Helena Maloney, Bridget Davis and Ginny Shanahan in 1917 on the anniversary of the Easter Rising. And Liz Gillis and Mary McAuliffe have written about, about this in their book. The women printed a large banner that read Jay Connolly murdered 12 May 1916 and they barricaded themselves into the roof of Liberty Hall and draped the banner in front of the building. And that radical action by those women made me think about Truth Flag's identity. And I suppose when you describe the artwork, it will become clear um, how I made that connection. So maybe you might do that for us, Alice. Yeah, so... Um... Truth Flags Identity and Migration Sings are two parts of a multi-platform work. So um, the first part are the uh, two flags, um, which were hung on the keys uh, directly opposite Temple Bar Gallery um, for the duration of Culture Night. Um, so those flags uh, feature two really important symbols to me. So one um, is a rendition of a Sheila gig 
holding her labia apart and smiling benevolently over the city. And the other is a, a drawing I did of a chimney ritual mask used in coming of age ceremonies in Sierra Leone, which is where my grandmother um, is from. Um, so uh, those two symbols are kind of symbols of my identity, but they're also sort of, uh, you know, symbols that aren't necessarily connected with a nation, but rather with a set of ideas. Um, the second part of the work is Migration Sings, which is an audiovisual work, and that features uh, one of my family photographs animated. Um, and the audio part is a song that I wrote and performed with Khalili Jabrila Conte, a Sierra Leonean songwriter and performer. That's excellent. Thanks, Alice. And there's so much going on in, in both artworks, so I'm excited that we can talk about them in depth. Um, and as we were talking about there, the flags, your flags, were installed just a little further down the Liffey from Liberty Hall, where Hackett, Maloney, Davis and Shanahan flew their banner in 1917. So we're talking about this kind of main thoroughfare of the city where people are passing through all the time. And both of both your artwork and the 1917 banner are significant interventions into that public space of Dublin city centre. And also, you know, there was there's kind of a, a history of, of use of flags throughout the War of Independence as well. Come in a man sold flags in order to raise money, um, which was illegal to do without a permit. So many of them were arrested for doing this. So um, I've been reading about that um, in Liz Gillis's work. And I've been thinking a lot about the object of a flag and what it means. So I'm curious why you chose to use flags for that artwork and what a flag represents to you. So the flag to me uh, was interesting because it is this kind of emblem or banner of, of identity. And I was really interested in thinking of a flag not as representative of fixed identity like a nation state rather as being representative of perhaps a non-fixed or fluid thing that moves and changes like water around obstacles this idea of an identity that is hybridized and um and multiple in its in its um in its representations so using these kind of symbols of the shilina gig and the timney mask and um, instead of sort of national colors for example and, and using the colors of the river and the riverbed as the colors of the flags um, created a new idea for a flag and an identity that is um, that is composite, fluid and, and hybridised. And so the flag in that sense as a moving object, as a temporary object and an object in terms of its situation that is close to the thoroughfare of, of, of the keys, but also the body of water itself, the Liffey, um, felt really, really important. Yeah, I think that's so meaningful, Alice. I, I love what you're saying about um, making a flag that can, as you said, be an assertion of something non-fixed or fluid. And it's so not the way that we're used to thinking about flags. And I think what they what they represent at a kind of a national level, or even as you're saying in sport or, or whatever. Um, that's one of the things I, I really, really love about Truth Flags Identity. And I'm interested in how your flags and the 1917 banner connect with and interject into the cityscape. So maybe initiating um, a kind of a collective response or engagement, maybe as a way to draw attention. Um, you've talked about the flags in Truth Flags Identity as being welcoming. And I know um, the women barricading themselves into Liberty Hall is a kind of a different action. Um, so could you maybe talk about that idea of, of welcoming in this artwork? Yeah, well, I suppose the Truth Flags Identity flags operate in a kind of a twofold way. 
in one sense, they're sort of welcoming or flagging the, the gallery's presence on the riverbank um, from the quays, but they're also in a way disrupting the expectation of a clear, recognizable flag. They're a kind of an artwork that is also a flag. And in this way, they, they signal uh, something more complex. And there's a kind of an assertion um, and in their in their non-fixity and in their um, in their kind of multiple representations of images, um, so that they don't they can't be pinned down easily is a kind of an assertive move. And there's a sort of a, there's something revolutionary in that a sort of radical. And that's certainly what I was trying to access. It's like what do we do when we disrupt these kind of common readings of of this this type of material or this um, this medium, um, and what can we do with that in public space? I also heard uh, really nice feedback from the uh, learning and engagement staff at Temple Bar Galleries that some of the participants in their workshops had described the flags as guarding the city. Yeah, I think that idea of guarding the city is very interesting. And as well, in the context of the the kind of 1917 banner too, um, you know, I think that action you know, I could think of that as maybe a guard against forgetting in a way, which I suppose is what we do when when we're commemorating in a sense. And I, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Um, another element of both Truth Flag's identity and the 1917 banner that I find very interesting from the point of view of my own practice is the idea of impermanence. And you've mentioned this a little already. I mean, sometimes I feel there's an overemphasis on permanence, particularly in academia and in literature. You know, there's a great weight put on permanent forms of dissemination, but I find value um, in temporary and impermanent ways of, of presenting work. Sometimes I think those are the most thought-provoking um, uh, kind of forms of showing work. So could you talk a little bit about that temporary nature of the flags and how that connects with the message of the artwork? For me, most certainly that idea of unstable and fixed identity is also something that is inherently itinerant and mobile and can literally unfold and make its home anywhere. And so that kind of gesture of unfolding um, and making a place um, in that unfolding is something that I really like about it in, in its material nature as a piece of fabric. Um, and then also on a scale that it's visible from so far away and it kind of creates a moment in, in its unfurling. And that moment kind of remains in memory. And I think that that's something that's quite nice about the temporary nature of the work is that it's, it's obviously been documented, but the time that it was at the river and flat and the wind was blowing through it, like that's a memory and that's a really nice uh, thing that it had this moment of, of um, memory making in, in the time that it was there. Absolutely. It's a it's an experience that I, I think can be quite profound for people. And I love what you're saying about um, the idea that it can make its home anywhere. That's very powerful. I think that's a really like that's qu quite an empowering message, um, especially when you think about these flags. I mean, for, for people who maybe didn't have the chance to see them on Culture Night um, flying over the Liffey, I think that's really that's an important message. Um, and kind of following on from that um, and what you're saying about where, where the flags were installed and, and the movement and the fluidity of, of the river as well as the flag themselves. Um, maybe we can just talk a little bit more about that and the importance of, of that kind of visibility and the large scale um, of the artwork. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was quite important at that time was that we, we didn't know who would have access to the work, you know. Um, 
and if, if it could be sh- like who, who could see the work when I was approached about the commission and so it became very clear to me that something outdoors that had impact and, and kind of visibility from from the street and from an open air um, space was, was really what kind of um, drove me to think about how it would be a public intervention or an intervention in public space um, and so talking to Dublin City Council about kind of loaning us the flagpoles uh, was a really um, um, interesting conversation and also really important um, to kind of, yeah, to have this sort of uh, mobile work that can be shown in this context or is made for this context, but can ultimately be, be re- redeployed or re or, or re- re-unfolded in, in another space and that that's kind of inherent in, in it as a design and then also kind of feeding into those conceptual sort of roots of, of fluidity and mobility and um, kind of making making a home where you where you lay your hat. Yeah, I suppose, um, I guess part of the concern in terms of how the work might be possible to show um, was the COVID regulations at the time. So we probably didn't know at that point whether galleries were going to be open and how long they might be open for. So um, that's, yeah, that's uh, a really uh, inventive way of getting around that for sure. and I think before we talked a little bit, um, you mentioned that kind of the street being a kind of a democratic space, which I really like the idea of. And I think that um, Maloney, Hackett, Davis and Shanahan were also thinking about that and kind of bolstering that democratic spirit by hanging the banner at Liberty Hall. Um, but just kind of moving on a little bit, um, Another focus of my research lately has been the role of song in the Easter Rising. So I'd love to talk about that um, and your film Migration Sings, which features a family photograph, animation and song. I'm interested in singing because there's many reports of song as a tool of protest and respite in the revolutionary period. The women arrested at Marabone Lane Barracks, for example, sang the whole way as they were marched by the British Army to Richmond Barracks. I've read about this in Sinead McCool's book, No Ordinary Women, also in Lily O'Brennan's account of The Surrender, which was published in the Irish press. She talks about the women, uh, quote, raising a song on the way to Kilmainham Jail. The women at at Richmond Barracks and Kilmainham Jail sang and danced in the prison yards. Um, McCool writes about the the women doing the 16-hand reel in the exercise yard of Kilmainham Jail. Um, And Gillis and McCullough also write about the singing and dancing. Um, once they were banned from singing in the yards, then they sang in their cells. So, I mean, there's many, many examples of this um, in the accounts of the rising. Um, Another one that I really like um, is when Gillis describes how in the aftermath of the rising, um, women commonly sang throughout legal proceedings and they quote, use their trials as platforms to gain support. So lots of different ideas here around song and singing. So maybe you could describe um, your artwork, Migration Sings. Um, so yeah, uh, the artwork is a kind of a, it's, it's the family photograph that you describe, which um, features myself as a five-year-old holding a cat, my grandmother, Isaacu Coloco, who had recently arrived from Sierra Leone as a refugee from the civil war there. My father and my little brother, and um, that's the, the the image of the photograph. And then the animated part is where I kind of draw this sort of line of protection around them. And as I draw, I sing, and you also hear the recording of, of Kylie Lowe, uh singing. And the song that we're singing is a song that we wrote together, um, and it's in Timney, which is my uh, 
grandmother's uh, native uh, language. Um, and uh, I don't speak Timney, so this was a thing where I really wanted to hear the Timney and also use the singing of the song as a way of learning it. Um, but the concepts and the ideas in the song, I, we, we wrote in, in English together and he translated them and taught me how to sing them. So that's the kind of, the, um, the kind of body of text that we're kind of working from. And, the, and the, the story we're talking about is this when Timney lament about intergenerational loss, about the Atlantic slave trade, and about um, kind of a post-colonial uh, kind of uh, subjectivity that is in a kind of a state of loss, but also a kind of a, a remembrance of that loss and a kind of a commemoration in that singing. And so one of the things that I quite like about the research that you described is this idea of song being a, a kind of a something that presents resistance, something that um, resists forgetting, um, and this kind of, uh, also the sort of solidarity that is drawn through song. And um, so the song in, in, in Migration Sings connects me with my grandmother's culture, um, which was lost through migration, um, and um, also connects a public with uh, a culture and a, and a story and a sound that they might not have heard before. And so there's this kind of dual capacity of the song where in a sense it's me uh, learning and, it, and in in front of the viewer learning and connecting with something that is obscure or fragmented in my subjectivity but also then sharing that that journey and uh, that process and all the kind of social and political implications of its necessity uh, with an audience um, and in a way also kind of bringing it back to my own family story um, and yeah, so that's that's how the song works inside it, and I feel there's a lot of resonance there, and particularly with this idea of the of the native tongue and the Temne language, and um, and the preservation of one's culture through oral history, uh, particularly through music, um, and yeah, I think that there's there's kind of plenty of resonances there. It's quite nice to think about the two in relation to to uh, your research also. Yeah, it's a really I, I really love migration things. It's a beautiful artwork and there's so much in what you said there. I, I really like what you said about the line of protection in, in the uh, film. Um, and it kind of reminds me again of Truth Flags Identity and the, the role that the flag plays in kind of guarding the city and that kind of line of protection as well. That it's, it's beautiful how it all fits together in that way. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important to think about song in the way that you're talking about it, um, not just as kind of entertainment and performance, but something that's linked to kind of empowerment and connection and and comfort and resistance. And, uh, you know, it can hold so much. I mean, sound holds so much. Um, and um, I think we've talked a little bit before about kind of fracture and connection uh, existing kind of alongside one one another and you've talked about how establishing a connection is is a kind of process and i th i think about the actions by um hackett maloney davis and shanahan um as a kind of a process and the same with the singing um you know and the role that that played like the the idea that these actions are not one once off events they're kind of continuous efforts to make connections and I think that kind of idea of um, process and something kind of actively happening is also at play in Migration Sings. W would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite interesting to think about, you know, how fracture and connection can exist alongside each other and also kind of be generative in being brought together. So, I mean, one of the 
most interesting things about the process of, of recording that song is that we did it over WhatsApp. So I would speak the uh, the intention of, or the ideas that I had for the song, and Kalilu would speak back to me in a recording about his ideas for the song. We would agree upon um, the meaning intended in the song. He would make the translation and sing that to me. I would sing it back to him. He would give me feedback on my terrible Timney pronunciation, and I would try again and try again and try again. And it, it's out of those individual voice recordings that I um, brought together the audio track and then also layering his voice over mine so that the two of us are singing at the same time. And so you get this idea of the call and response that is the kind of um, uh, the bringing together um, and kind of the use of, of WhatsApp as, as, as kind of an amazing way to sort of to, to be able to collaborate uh, with someone who is not only thousands of miles away, but uh, couldn't get a visa to come to Ireland, most likely. Um, and is uh, yeah, and during COVID and lockdown, we were both locked down. So it was like this very, very special way of bridging those um, multiple kind of um, social, economic and, and political kind of gaps. Um, yeah, it was it was very interesting in, in, in terms of how the process looked at all that stuff and, and kind of brought to the fore a lot of those kind of concerns. Yeah, and I think you're kind of hitting on something there that I find in your work generally when you're talking about trying again and trying again. I think there's a, a persistence in your work um, that is is very um moving actually um and maybe we'll talk about breaking emmett's block for a bit i'm really excited to talk about this um this uh, work is installed at the grange road plaza in rathfarnham in dublin and it responds to robert emmett so of course there's a link to revolution and commemoration um, I really love the text describing the artwork on your website, especially the lines about revolution and the state. It reads, quote, we build upon revolutionary sacrifice to construct a new state for the Irish people. And these are the kinds of things I'm thinking about with the revolutionary women. I think a lot about the sacrifices that people like Emmett made for Ireland. So can you tell us a, a little bit about breaking Emmett's block? And I'm really interested um, because you use both Irish and English in the artwork. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, breaking Emmett's block is, is made of concrete and kind of materiality of concrete. Um, for me, is very much linked to this idea of a kind of a nation rebuilding its its heritage and its memory, and the kind of formal sort of inspiration for it were, were from uh, Yugoslav monuments after the war that were commissioned um, by Tito, and you find them all across the Balkan. Kind of that idea of kind of making a memory a memorial uh, quickly and using concrete as a sort of quick material that you can kind of render really interesting ways and. Um, you know, in terms of the, the concept of the sculpture, it, it really does try to to speak to the heroism and brilliance and imagination that underpin the history of St. Enda's Park, um, particularly the, the school that, that Pierce had there before the revolution, and then it as a site for kind of convening, organising and practising for the revolution. Um, and then also looking at the St. Enda's and uh, the Pierce Museum um, as a place that holds kind of artefacts of, of kind of Irish history, particularly um, it's block, um, which is on display in the museum, and this is um, this was the butcher's block that Robert Emmons was decapitated on, that was then turned into a table, um, and the table was used as a kind of a propaganda device, and it was toured around the country, and the first uh, bonds for the Irish Free State were signed on it as a way of encouraging people to invest in the state. And this um, 
this table is now held in a museum and it has a very, very peculiar shape because it used to be a butcher's block. It's kind of um, sort of looks like uh, looks like a dolman. And so this kind of this visual kind of connection and then this kind of connection between Ireland's revolutionary history and Ireland's megalithic ancient history uh, became something that was really exciting to me and confusing them together um, um, kind of around this asymmetrical shape um, of kind of curved and angular surfaces to kind of create this very dynamic thing that is sort of a mythical object of like blue lightning bolts, like shattering a dolmen. And um, kind of, as it's like uh, something archetypal, but also something that no one's ever seen before. It's sort of trying to key into those sort of mythological ideas and, and the creativity in that. Um, also thinking about Emmet as the sweetheart of Sarah Curran and Sarah Curran Avenue is the avenue that is adjacent to the, the Grange Road Plaza and this idea of bringing them together. So this kind of movement between, um, you know, uh, social and political um, kind of upheaval and uh, kind of destruction and reconstruction of identities, but then also this very sort of subjective um, and personal sort of romance between these two characters and the site being important in that regard as well. Um, so yeah, this idea of sort of fantastic, explosive uh, imagery um, and reflecting on the impact of change and an emergence of the new world from the old are all really kind of crucial to the thinking behind it and, and the energy that's inside that work. It's like a work of stone, but there's a lot of movement and energy in it. And also when kind of understanding that because it is like quite an unusual uh, an object um, inserted into the space where people live, like it's quite um, residential. And um, so thinking that it was like how this was um, communicated, the ideas, these ideas of mine were communicated to the public was really important. And like I'm bilingual, I speak Irish and English fluently. And so I wrote a text uh, that explained this idea in both languages. And it's presented alongside the uh, sculpture, kind of close beside it. You can read the text and, and connect with those ideas. And it's been really nice. I mean, I was doing a repair on it um, quite soon after it was installed. And people were asking me about it. And it was really nice to hear that people did actually really like it and that it has been accepted by its immediate kind of surroundings. Um, with public art, there's always that question of vandalism or, you know, will will the body reject the new organ or the transplant, you know, and that, and that it's been accepted and integrated into it and hasn't been vandalised and is in fact something that people enjoy is really, really important to me as well. It's an excellent artwork. I went to see it during lockdown and you're right. It's like, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It has such energy. And I actually, I was saying to Alice that I went to school around there. So I'm very, very familiar with the area and we, we would have been brought to the Pierce Museum many times. And I think, um, I think it's amazing that that artwork is there. And I hope that when um, school children are being brought to the Pierce Museum. They're also being brought to Breaking Emmet's Block. Um, it's such such a wonderful artwork. Um, and we talked a good bit about this in the prep about about the artwork as um, being a kind of a balance between mourning and celebration because that's always at play in a commemorative project. And of course, I think about that in my work at the National Library. Um, so I'm kind of curious about what your experience of making a commemorative artwork was I, I remember you mentioned um uh kind of an experience with the with a wreath uh so i don't know if you might want to talk about that a little bit yeah sure i mean it's really interesting because like i was responding to the commission as um like a visual like 
physical manifestation of a particular energy of a kind of a moment and this um, kind of simultaneously generative and destructive moment of revolution. And that was what I was trying to, to, to bring into, into the space. Um, and um, that was how I was thinking of my work the entire time, all the way up to when it was officially opened uh, by um, South Dublin County Council. And at the opening, um, the mayor of Tala laid a wreath on uh, the plinth of the sculpture and it was in that moment that I realised that I had also, that this was also commemorating the death of, of many people um, and, um, and that kind of became real to me in ways that I hadn't, um, that it hadn't before. It became sort of palpable in a way, that it was a memorial as much as a celebration and that in itself is um, the kind of contradiction and the sort of the reality of, of, of revolution is that, um, you know, that people are lost people sacrifice themselves in that moment and um, and that idea of having made a memorial that focused so much on on, on the kind of energetic exchange of revolution and, and maybe in a conceptual or, or in the kind of realm of myth and um, it was then grounded and connected to this very real moment of, of kind of loss and commemoration and um, in, in its open to the public and yeah it's, it's quite interesting to think about it in that context retrospectively as an artist. Um, and what the artwork would have looked like if I had meditated more on this idea of of, of memorial of of, of, the, of the loss of, of life, um, and if it would have been different. Do you think it would have? I don't know. Um, it's very hard to kind of think about um, in retrospect because I feel like it could only ever have been what it was. Um, and I connected with the the brief or the the kind of commissioning um, uh, idea. In the way that was most natural and instinctive to me, which is to focus on the focus on where the energy was at, and that in the kind of exchange, um, you know, between this sort of moment of destruction and moment of generation, this kind of ultimately transforming, kind of uh, cleaving apart of, of, of history in a way, um, and yeah, I think that that's that's it turned out the only way it could have. But it's when you kind of get these sort of moments where it becomes. Um, where it becomes a property of the public. It's like the symbolic transfer of power where like, it's not my sculpture anymore, it now belongs to the park. And then it's coded in its own ways and, and, and that becomes part of its story. Do you find that um, hard at all? Because I, that's part of, um, you know, when I think about permanence and impermanence and uh, what you're saying there about like, you know, once you produce something and it's in, the, in a public space that it, it kind of belongs to the public then, is that something that you're, you're good at letting go of or is it hard sometimes? I think for me, um, you know, my gallery based practice and my public practice are, are different. They take, they come with different expectations for me. And I think the public artwork is always with the sense that it's a kind of, it's, it's for the public. It's like a gift, but I want them to like it. I want them to be able to engage with it. And uh, it's also a, a way of communicating you know, the things that are important to me through my work in a very particular uh, way. Um, and the permanence of it is also something that I think about it that is something that I will live with, but it may also out outlive me. And so those those considerations are, are present from the beginning of my thinking or in work with public space. And, and I feel like a certain pride in that, um, in this, and in a kind of a, a 
a service or a public service in a way to be able to make a piece of public art and to have that honor um, and to hope that it will uh, that it will that it will serve as a memorial as a source of joy as a source of curiosity and as a kind of a beacon of, of remembrance and hopefully inspiration for, for new creation to be made as well yeah because I guess it could be there forever right could be <laughs> that's exciting to think about <laughs> it's very high quality concrete so it technically should be there forever yeah i hope it's there forever why did it's not really by lightning <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean that would be ironic <laughs> so before we wrap up um this has been such a great conversation i i'd like to talk a little bit about your current exhibition family lines which is open now at the douglas high gallery in dublin so um, I know it's a multi-platform project and I've been watching the film screenings online, um, but I'm sure listeners would love to know a little bit more about it and how they can experience its various parts. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for asking. So yeah, Family Lines is a multi-platform project that I have um, partnered with the Douglas High to deliver. Um, I'm collaborating with a number of really, really excellent people. So one of my collaborators is Erin and I. Erin uh, and I are a community archive for Black Migrants in Ireland. Um, and we also have contributions from Holly Graham, Salma Collar, Daria Chimpong and uh, Enrique Paris with Cypher Billboard in London. Um, so the project explores experiences of migration and survival within the family unit. And it focuses on black and mixed race life in Ireland across generations. So this idea of intergenerational experience, learning and legacy is really at the centre of the project. And for me, with the invitation uh, to do a solo exhibition with the Douglas Hyde, um, I saw this as a great opportunity to sort of open up multi-platforms and bring other artists along to kind of create um, a context for the conversations that I needed to and wanted to have through my work and, and also to really showcase some of the amazing uh, talent that um, young artists of, of African descent in, in, in the UK are um, producing. And so it was really a, a very important moment and is an important moment uh, for, for art in Ireland, I think, and to kind of have this opportunity to see these works. So it's starting with the um, monthly screenings, which you talked about. And so I chose the first two. Uh, the first one I chose was uh, Dreaming Rivers by Martina Tilly, Sankofa Film and Video Collective. And the second one is Twilight City by Riesog East and Black Audio Film Collective. And uh, Twilight City is still currently um, available for um, watching online till the 25th of November. Um, and then after that, Erin uh, and I are going to be inviting um, uh, an artist of their choice and so on. And each of the artists that will be showing their work will also be inviting uh, and showing a work that has inspired and um, connected them with uh, their heritage or their practice. And so that's the idea of kind of creating this kind of uh, genealogy of artistic inheritance. So I showed works that really informed um, my work as an artist. Erin and I are showing works that connect with their work as, as archivists and cultural producers. Um, and Holly and Selma and Larry and Henrique will also be uh, kind of working within that as a kind of a framework as well. I think that sounds so excellent because I I think um, just from my own experience, people are very interested in in kind of how you come to be an artist and what your influences are and and what kinds of things you are reading and looking at and watching and to have that insight available as kind of part of that of your project is I think very generous and also like um, very unique for for the public to be able to see that part as well as what finally ends up in a gallery space, for example. 
And I don't know if I, am I right in thinking, Alice, there's um, posters in Dublin or on billboards? Yeah, there's, so, there's kind of so many parts to the project. I, I wasn't sure how much to, to talk about. But yeah, so we have the film screenings, which is an online platform. Um, on the Douglas Hyde through the Douglas Hyde website, um, then um, I have uh, created a billboard, uh, two billboards actually, or two posters rather that are visible on billboards in Dublin City and Cork City at the moment. Um, the image is called uh, "Isa Two at Rest," and it's uh, kind of a collage that I made using an image of my grandmother playing solitaire in her apartment in Creekin in the sixties, and the Sierra Leonean woman carding cotton, and it's a meditation on feminized labour and kind of rest as, as, a, as a form of resistance and um, that's um, visible right now and should be there until uh, the end of December and um, and then kind of the billboards will happen kind of at intervals all the way up to the opening of my solo presentation at the Douglas Hyde which will open in the summer of next year and so we have like all these different things kind of happening and activating different ideas and bringing, bringing different work to the audience and then I know, and the workshops then with Erin and I kind of speaking to and, and bringing together elements of the Black Irish community um, and kind of all these things kind of culminating into this uh, this kind of archive of, of material and then also a presentation of Erin um, and I's work in Douglas Hyde alongside my own artwork in an exhibition in the summertime. So there's a lot to follow and I recommend just kind of keep, keeping an eye on the Douglas Hyde website for the different iterations of the work that's going to be coming out so exciting and there's so much that you said there I feel like we could talk for another half an hour about but I mean because I love what you're talking about as um rest as resistance I'm really really interested in that idea and um one artist that's very I find very informative and influential on that um front is Nibia Pastrana Santiago and um the artwork the lazy dancer um so people maybe i'll put that in the show notes as well but um yeah i think rest as resistance is re is really important and uh, and what you're talking about like about feminized labor i mean of course all of that is really pertinent to women's role in the in the irish revolution like before during and after the easter rising um there's just so much and i'm also we really can't you know there's not time to talk about this today but maybe another time um because i also make a lot of artwork um about my grandmother actually i think it was adam hannah at ucc who first pointed out that connection between your work and mine so i i feel like sometime alice you and i will have to have another conversation maybe just about grandmothers <laughs> that sounds brilliant i love that idea thank you <laughs> But we will we'll wrap up now, um, maybe to be continued. And um, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing um, all of the project of Family Lines. Um, everyone should go and check that out on the Douglas Hyde Gallery's website. Thank you so much for that conversation, Alice. I really, truly enjoyed it. Um, you can find out more about Alice Recab's work at alicerecab.com. My website is juliemorrissey.com. So to close this episode, um, I'm really delighted that Alice is going to share the audio from their artwork, Migration Sings. Um, Alice, maybe I'll let you introduce the piece if that works. Yeah, so this is the audio track from the film Migration Sings. So on this, you're going to hear first Kailili singing on his own, the, the first call, um, and this is the Timmy Lament. Uh, describing uh, kind of loss and intergenerational um, kind of fragmentation uh, through slavery, through conflict, um, and um, 
the kind of very last part of the song, you hear my voice joining him. And this is my attempt to, to echo uh, the language and learn, um, and also to, to join him in, uh, in my, with my voice so that we sing together. There's a kind of an act of solidarity. Kaililu uh, Jibwila Conte is an artist former uh, based in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and we've been in correspondence for the last two years. Now want me nangabila me imuchi numbo afma me kuma kasibo mami ikarono okera akene karake kunoshinomba asabunge yo tatavtebi tukwelenos dodi now want me nangabila me imuchi numbo afma me kuma kasibo mami ikarono okera now want me na gabila mi imuchinu ba afma me gome ngasbo mami ikaranu okera akane karake komoshino ba sabunge yeto tafte bi gulenos dodi now want me na gabila mi imuchinu ba afma me gome ngasbo mami ikaranu okera Thanks, Alice. Um, we will also link to the film in the show notes and to all of the things that have come up in our discussion today so people can follow the references. Um, thank you, um, all the listeners, for joining. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode of Radical Women and the Irish Revolution is created by Julie Morrissey as part of the Poet in Residence program at the National Library of Ireland. Supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Geltok, Sport and Media under the Decade of Centenaries program 2012 to 2023. Sound and production are by the Museum of Literature Ireland.